0: Because in 2 Peter 3 3 through 7, the Apostle Peter tells us that one of the reasons human beings in the last days are going to scoff at the second coming is because they deliberately forget what God did in Genesis 1 and the implications for reality, the implications for us, the implications for those who choose to resist Him. And he says that there's a direct correlation between a scoffing spirit concerning the second coming of Christ and a wicked lifestyle of following evil desires, that if we don't take the day of the Lord and the Messiah's second coming seriously, that it it leads to slothfulness in our hearts. At best, at worst, it leads to out-and-out rebellion against Him if we continue to harden our hearts over time and indulge in sin. So last week, we focused in more on how God wrapped Himself in light, and we just asked the Lord to fascinate our understanding and our hearts with what He did when He created light on the first day. Light was created substance, and God, the uncreated God, decided to wrap Himself with something created, and we explored. Why did He do that? What was in His heart? What was motivating Him? God is beyond the highest heavens. The highest heavens cannot contain Him created light on the first day, and we talked about how he's, he's organized and arranged His being in such a way as to be accessible to His creation. You know, and put it simply, He loves us. He wants us to be able to get to Him, okay? And He's the uncreated God, and He wanted us to get to Him. You know, we talked a little bit about this, you know, every parent knows about the getting game. Your parents want to get you, and you want to get them. And so, Haven and I, my second born, we could go hours and hours going back and forth down the hall, getting each other. and I, We just like that. That's because God likes it. He made us, he made us in His image. Uh, the next point, we also talked about light and the resurrected body. When Jesus was raised from the dead, He was raised with a real body of flesh and blood. He made a point. Thomas, disciples, touch my hands. It's not a ghost. I'm a real human being. And yet we also saw that this wasn't just a normal body, but it was a body infused and interwoven with light, and that He could do things in that body that He couldn't do before He had that body. He could walk through doors. He could could ascend into the heavens. But He also ate fish, and He made it a point to say, make some fish for me and He ate it. And so we talked about how, uh, for example, uh, Philippians three twenty 20-21, when Jesus returns, He's going to give us similar bodies that can do similar things. Verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like His glorious body. This is very good news, because i can't tell you how many times a day i have to remind myself i need i'm going to get a resurrected body it's not going to be like this forever okay i mean that that information keeps me going most days this morning i'm laying in bed didn't want to i'm just like god oh, i can't do this you know the snooze is coming around oh and one day the snooze button is not going to be what has to get me out of the out of bed in the morning Matthew 13, uh, this is one of my favorite passages. You know, when Jesus comes back, He's going to establish His kingdom. Verse 43, it says that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Because, as it says, I think it's in Luke 20, that, that we're sons and daughters of God because we're sons of the resurrection. Jesus says it point blank that God lives forever, and therefore if we're His sons and daughters made in His image, then we have to live forever. So we're sons and daughters by virtue of the fact that were sons and daughters of the re- resurrection. I believe that's in Luke twenty. Romans eight eighteen, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so, in this age when we're carrying our cross and we're dying to self and we're dying to sinful desires, when we're choosing to bless when we're persecuted, when we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, when day after day we're dying daily, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes involuntarily. Okay. That the things that, in, that entail carrying our cross in this age, they don't even compare com- to the surpassing glory that's going to be revealed in our bodies when they're filled with light and glory. The emotion we're going to feel, the aliveness we're going to feel, it's going to be a fleeting memory, this age and the sufferings we endured in this age. Two weeks ago, we also talked about how the heavens and the earth are likened to a house to a house or a household, and that how God has taken up residence in this household. He's a loving Father, and He loves His creatures in His house. The heavens are likened to the upper chambers, the earth to the lower chambers of the foundation. When God created the heavens and the earth, He established His throne in the highest heavens. And as we talked about, a throne is a place of government and authority. What does a king do on his throne? Well, he sits on his throne, and he rules a kingdom from his throne. He makes judgments. He gives decrees. He sets standards, okay, and the highest heaven is His throne and the earth is His footstool. So if you want to go into, uh, learn more about that, we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago and we talked about, uh, we looked at the process where God took water and stretched out the heavens like a tent and how He made the earth out of water, Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? And so tonight we're going to look at two two other important related topics. First, we're going to explore how God's universal kingdom, we're going to call it the universal kingdom, we'll define that more in a minute, over all creation, relates to the, the kingdom that Jesus will establish when He returns. The kingdom to come that is promised in Scripture, how does that relate to God's kingdom as He sits over all creation from the highest heavens. Then we're going to explore what is God presently doing from His throne in the highest heavens, as well as what He's not presently doing and why He's not doing that. Okay, we want to understand the ways of God tonight. We're going to ask Him for understanding of how He operates and functions in relationship to us in this age and in the age to come. And I tell you what, when He begins to to give us understanding of these things, it. it it helps us to know even how to lead our own homes. I Just to give a, a, a testimony, uh, on Mother's Day, we were uh, in church and struggling with, Lord, give us insight into parenting. And we're just, you know, we, there's lots of books out there, but Lord, what do you think about it? <laughs> what do you think about this? How are you relating? How do you relate to your children? How do you express, what are the multiple dimensions in, in which, out of, uh, through which you express your heart? And how can we Bring those down to the home level and put practical feet on them. And so, we want to ask God to begin helping us, giving us understanding. And, and, and uh, He's given us some insight in that, and, and we're really thankful for some of the things that we're seeing in our home as the fruit of that. And so, I'm not going to go into all of that, but uh, definitely we're not, there getting, we're not perfect, but we're getting there step by step, and the Lord is wanting to give us understanding of His heart so that we can grow and begin actually implementing these things, whether they're at home or at the workplace, so that we can communicate who He is and be in agreement with what He's trying to communicate to us. So let's talk about the kingdom of God. <clears throat> A lot of times we 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 throw out terms, even in prayer, but sometimes uh, we may not necessarily, you know... Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes a term can become so familiar to us, is what I'm saying, that we don't take the time to actually investigate it in the Word thoroughly. And uh, you know, this is one of those terms, the kingdom of God. I mean, all of us have heard the kingdom of God kingdom of God, a lot in church, but we're going to kind of break this down a little bit more through a lot of Scriptures and ask the Lord to really give us some, some clarity on, on what He means by this. So, in scripture, there are two primary ways in which the kingdom of God is understood. Okay, when you see God talking about his kingdom, there, use, there seems to be, he usually takes it one of two directions. And they're definitely, they're dynamically interrelated to one another. Okay, so we don't want to have like a hard distinction, but we want to get an understanding of what these different scriptures mean. So, the first is the kingdom of God in a universal sense. Okay? Universal, you know, we all know what that means. It simply means everything, everywhere, all things. And from His throne in the highest heavens, God is overseeing all of His creation. He is king and ruler over everything in all creation. He rules over all. He gives decrees. I think of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had authority because God gave him authority. Okay? The heavens and the earth are the kingdom of over which God rules from His throne in the highest heavens. Now, you're not going to find a term in the Bible called the universal kingdom, but we're just, it's, it's a way to help us understand the nature of, uh, of the kingdom that's being described in certain passages, okay? Just God's in charge of it all. That's what we're saying, okay? Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. So God the Father sitting on his throne in glorious light overseeing all of his creation that he loves. Job 41:11, who has a claim against me that I must pay? This is God speaking to Job. In Job 41, he says everything under heaven belongs to me. He's saying I created it, I own it. I am the possessor of it. I give it to whom I will and I take it back from whom I will. It's a fundamental point that we need to understand because part of the scoffing spirit related to Genesis 1 is no you didn't we scoff at God that he is the one that actually has authority and power over the heavens and the earth we think we do we've got to get that fundamental truth straight okay to really relate to God well it doesn't it doesn't really work life doesn't really work if we if we don't have that basic foundation in place So, Deuteronomy 10, 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Same point. God made it. God owns it. Now, He loves to share. He loves to share, okay? He loves to bless. He loves to pour out blessings, but it's got to be on His terms. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 11, this is King David. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So whose is the kingdom, according to David? The Lord's. Who is exalted as head over all, us or God? Okay, now you start to see why Peter says that a scoffing spirit is related to deliberate forgetting of Genesis 1 because some of those foundational truths which make reality and existence actually work the way God wants it to work have to be in place there in our understanding. So here's my question this is not a rhetorical question. So that means that, you know, we again I want to I want to create an atmosphere, a real safe environment for people to begin asking questions and discussing some things. Um, but also you know we can plow through some stuff too. So don't be afraid um, to give some answers and thoughts. I'm gonna ask some basic questions, uh, and don't, if it's, if the answer seems obvious, still speak them out. That's the point, is we wanna we wanna get on, we just wanna get clarity on some of the simple points. So Who is the king of the universal kingdom of the heavens and the earth? Good. Not much discussion on that one. We're agreed on that, right? Good. Let's move on. So, who are the subjects of this kingdom? We are? Okay. Okay. Beasts? Angels? Good. Seraphim, good. Beasts, angels, seraphim. We? Living creatures. Okay, what else? Sounds everything. Now, what? Okay. What about uh, the wicked? Are they part of the universal kingdom? Okay. What about the righteous? Good. (laughs) Good, good. Good. The point, I, I, the, the point I'm trying to draw out here is that there is, there is a sense in which we're... that all, all human beings are part of God's kingdom because He sits enthroned over it all, even when we're resisting Him, okay, in this age. So is that clear? Okay. So in other parts of Scripture, the kingdom of God is described and understood in a more specific kind of way as an earthly kingdom... That will be established specifically by the Messiah, the the man that God has chosen to establish justice on the earth at the end of the age. So let's plow through some Bible verses here. We're going to start in Daniel 2. Let's work through this carefully and, and just ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Holy Spirit, we don't want just words on a page. We want our hearts alive. Stir in us, Holy Spirit, quicken our hearts to the understanding and revelation from this passage, Lord, that you desire for us in Jesus' name. So this is Daniel 2. Now, most of us are familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right, for the background and context. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar is just establishing his kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, and you know, when a a new kingdom is being established, kings tend to be paranoid, <laughs> okay, there's lots of people that they they tend to think that their kingdom is going to get overtaken. Well, it that might be one of the reasons why he was he really was paranoid about this dream that he had. He he called all the magicians and enchanters together, and he said, "I had this dream last night, and I don't just want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. You've got to tell me the dream that I had first, and give the interpretation." This obvious, this sends everybody into a, a crisis their lives and their families are at stake. Uh, Daniel figures out the situation. Why is the king so upset? And uh, takes some time to pray about it, and the Lord gives him the, a vision at night about the king's dream and the interpretation of it. Okay, so that's the context. So, let's read through this passage. We're going to read through a lot of Bible verses here, beginning in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, I think that's how you pronounce it, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I believe that maybe some of you guys in this room might, what if you end up in a situation like this at the end of the age? We need to be clear at who's really the one giving the ability to interpret dreams if, you, if the Lord does call you to be in that situation. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. So what's the, thing, what's the dream about? Something that's going to happen when? In days to come. Okay? So it's a future reality. That's how I interpret in days to come. Something future, right? Okay. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Verse 29. As you were lay, lying there, O king... Your mind turned to things to come. So again, a future reality is being described here. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. So again, it's being reinforced that there's a future reality being described in this vision. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O King, may know the interpretation, that you may understand what went through your mind? And the reason Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand this was because he needed to repent and be humble before God. Okay? And we learned that in a couple, a couple chapters later. That, that's at least one of the reasons why he needed to know this. There may have been more, but... Verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. So what does that tell us immediately? That whatever this thing is, it's, it's not human. It's not, it's not human in origin. It's not created by man. Okay? It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them, i.e. judgment, smashing Like clay, you know, that means judgment, okay? Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. Oh, that's such good news. That when the restoration of all things begins and righteousness is established on the earth, there's not going to be a trace of the things that corrupt and defile the earth. Oh, thank You, Father. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain. And we're going to learn from uh, a few verses later that that means a kingdom and filled the whole earth and that the earth is going to be the centers of this, of this kingdom's expansion. So, verse 36, this was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, the God of heaven, Has given you dominion and power and might and glory, so who gives dominion and power and might and glory? Very important, because at the end of the age, there's going to be a final empire. God's going to allow it to have dominion temporarily. He has a lot of different reasons why he's doing it, but this this information is supposed to keep you anchored. That there there is an appointed time when that wicked kingdom that comes is going to end. It's going to be brought to its knees, and the saints will be vindicated. So, this truth is very important. Verse 38, "...in your hands He has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, He has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise." And again, He's talking about an actual earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, inferior to yours. "...next, a third kingdom, one of bronze." will rule over the whole earth. So, this next kingdom, this one of bronze, it's going to be ruling over the whole what? Spiritual, floaty heaven or the earth? The earth, that's right, because God loves the earth. We talked about in, a few weeks ago how He's in covenant with His creation. He doesn't like it when it's ruled harshly and in, uh, not in love. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, again, another earthly kingdom, strong as iron, for iron iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom, again, it's talking about an earthly kingdom, will be partly strong and partly brittle. If we were having a good end times discussion, we'd, we'd be tearing into some of these verses but, but uh, in a little more detail, but that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about tonight. Verse 43, And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Verse 44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will, again, he's talking about a future reality, set up a kingdom. Now, okay, so if it's not the kingdom of man, and the origins of this kingdom are, are not of man, it's the kingdom of God, okay? And this kingdom of God, as we saw, it's going to be like a mountain that fills the whole earth, and it will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will Crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Have those kingdoms been crushed yet? mm -mm. There's still a lot of bad stuff happening on the earth, and it's just going to get worse until Jesus comes back. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. So if we want to know the interpretation of this rock, this mountain, he's saying that this mountain represents a kingdom that's going to fill and expand and fill the... It's going to expand and fill the earth with glory and righteousness, but it's going to be established by God through His appointed Messiah, as we learn in other passages, and that this rock is going... It it broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now, if you are a governor on the earth now, and you're accepting bribes, and you're corrupt, and you are robbing the poor and the oppressed. You don't want to read Daniel 2 very often, or you want to read Daniel 2 and let it do what it ultimately did in connection with with Nebuchadnezzar and some other passages, drive you to repentance. Because what he told Nebuchadnezzar that those who exalt themselves, God is able to humble, and He will set the lowly over the kingdoms of the earth, and that's what He's going to do in the age to come when Jesus sets up His kingdom. Did you know that, is it true, Jen, that uh, one of the few books of the Bible that's, that's not allowed to be read in China, I think it's Revelation and Daniel? Interesting, interesting. You think some of those guys may have read some of these, these verses? <clears throat> well, I just want to say, if any heads of nations ever come across this recording... Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, because He is coming, and He will remove every haughty ruler from their throne, and He will exalt the humble and meek of the earth in resurrected bodies. So be among them. Don't be among those who are judged when He returns. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. So keep the imagery from Daniel 2, the mountain of the Lord filling the earth. Isaiah 2, 1-5, uh, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the what? The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. What do you think chief among the mountains means? It's the head. It's the center. It's the chief. <laughs> okay you know there's a reason you know that that native americans in the tribes in the past had a chief you know it's, he's the he's the man jesus is going to be the man jerusalem's going to be the mountain okay the temple it's going to be raised and exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it many peoples will come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The whole earth is going to be coming out of a time of unprecedented craziness. They're going to need answers. There's going to be a man on a throne in Jerusalem who has the answers. How do we live righteously? How do we govern ourselves? How do we we bring blessing and well-being to others rather than curses and destruction? Okay? Those are going to be the questions that are hot in everybody's heart because we just saw the fruit of what our sin does in its fullest measure, okay, in the years leading up to Jesus' second coming. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, farm equipment. (laughs) All these tanks are going to be turned into farm equipment. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The reason that admonishment is given to Israel is because they have a very high calling, and this is their destiny, that Israel is going to be a place from which the whole earth is renewed and restored, and Israel was having such a hard time with idols and false gods. And so they're saying, Israel, God saying, Israel, in light of this calling uh, on Jerusalem and the nation, walk in the light of the Lord. Don't turn to idols so that you can enter into it when it actually arrives in human history. Isaiah 9, 1-7, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew quotes this in his gospel, Jesus walking uh, walking in Galilee. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Think about last week's message. Light dawning on those living, where? In the land of the shadow of death. That's good news. We're not going to be stuck in the grave. You have enlarged the nation. Now, I think this means geographically and also a number, and this includes resurrected saints, because the nation of Israel never has fully uh, possessed. They got really close when Solomon was king, but I don't even think, even during his reign, they got the full measure of what God promised him, uh, the nation. Um, so God's going to enlarge the nation, It's going to increase their joy. If you look in some amazing passages, Isaiah 49, 66, Daniel 12, 13. In Daniel 12, 13, Daniel's told that he's going to rest, but that at the end of days, he's going to rise up from the grave to receive his allotted inheritance. That Daniel still has an inheritance in the land of Israel, and that he's going to receive it. That God didn't just leave him in Babylon to die, that he's actually going to rise and receive an allotted inheritance in a resurrected body in that land. And I love I, Isaiah 66 talks about, can a nation be born in a day? Because what's going to be happening when Jesus comes back, He's going to speak the word and all these people are going to be coming up from the dead at the same time and a whole nation is going to be populated by, by resurrected human beings. So, <laughs> so I don't know if you guys have, have thought about, you know, just, it's it, just a lot of those passages. Isaiah 49 Jerusalem, it's a it's a picture of Jerusalem asking, where did all these sons come from? I'm adorned with all of these sons and daughters. Where did they come from? Well, they came up from the dirt, okay? Now, so it's I think it's going to include some other people besides resurrected saints, but we're not going to get into all of that, um, how that looks in the age to come. <laughs> There's a lot of passages that you got to work through, but anyhow... The nation's gonna, they're gonna, they're, the reason they're gonna be increasing in joy is because they're not dead anymore. That's one of the main reasons. And they've been waiting for this day for a long, long time. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. I think Midian, that, that was when Gideon fought. Now, did Gideon fight with a big army? Small army. They were a small, weak army. And the reason God said that He was trimming down the size of their army was so that when they won the victory that no man could take credit for it. Well, that's the same point here is that He's saying that when Jesus comes to establish His kingdom and He resurrects His saints and suddenly they were, they were the oppressed, they were the victims being persecuted and harmed, that suddenly there's going to be a reversal. They're going to come up from the grave and they're going to join Jesus in in actually taking over the earth and establishing the kingdom. So there's going to be a dramatic reversal. The the, the yoke that's on, that's on the saints is going to be broken. The, the saints will be resurrected and vindicated. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders... He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase, now think of the imagery of the mountain expanding throughout the earth. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be what? No end. How did Daniel 2 put it? it this kingdom will not be given to another. That this kingdom is going to go on and on and on and on, and the light's going to keep flowing, and, the, and just the glory and the worship's going to keep going and going. And we're going to keep eating fish because Jesus, he liked fish. He will reign where? On David's throne and over his kingdom. Now, where did David sit on a throne? In Jerusalem. That's right. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, these are just three of many passages that begin to give us a picture of the Messiah's coming kingdom, that it's going to be an earthly kingdom, it's going to have a center in Jerusalem, and that the things going on in Jerusalem are going to attract all the nations of the earth, that the wisdom of the Messiah in Jerusalem is going to result in the nations ceasing from war, they're going to to take all their war equipment, scrap it, okay, and they're going to be It's all going to be about peace now. It's going to be peace that only God can establish. Only God can establish peace in the Middle East. In case anybody has any doubts about that, there will only be lasting peace in the Middle East when Jesus comes and gets Israelis and Palestinians loving each other because they're in resurrected bodies, reconciled, full of love and light and glory. Okay? Um, Little bunny trail, but related. So... This kingdom, when Jesus comes to establish it, it's not going to be established by human power. It's going to be established by God's power. No kingdom, no, no, no rebellious nation can resist what's going to happen. It's, it's like Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire against God? It's futile. They're flesh and blood. They forgot Genesis 1. They forgot the order of creation, okay? So, and this kingdom is going to have its base in Jerusalem. Jesus, the, 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 the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, is going to be sitting on the throne. The law is going to be going out from Jerusalem, filling the nations of the earth, and as that happens, the glory of God is going to cover the entire earth, and wickedness will be removed, and... There's not going to be any more curse on the ground and all of these beautiful things but this is God's program to redeem the earth. Romans 8 says that the creation groans it longs it's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Well when are they revealed? They're revealed in the resurrection. Why does why are why is the creation groaning for that? Because when the sons of God come up from the grave, they're not going to corrupt the earth anymore. They're going to they're going to steward it in love and bring it back to a place of restoration and wholeness under Jesus' leadership, okay? So, it's an earthly kingdom. So, again, Scripture describes the kingdom of God in two senses. So, here's my question. Which one of those is the kingdom of God? The earthly kingdom that's coming that's still future, or the universal kingdom over which that God oversees from the highest heavens on His throne? Which one's the kingdom of God? Yeah, that's both. Now, are those two kingdoms dynamically related? Of course they are. Okay? But we want to get an understanding of when the Scripture, what's, which, one it's trying, which dimension it's trying to highlight if that, with, with, which, with each one and why it's doing that. So first, the universal kingdom. Just to summarize, we're saying God rules over the heavens and the earth presently from His throne in the highest heavens over all creation. Okay? And we're going to talk in a little bit about how He's ruling. Okay, how He's ruling. Second, and why He's ruling that way. Second, the future kingdom of the Messiah on the earth. This kingdom awaits a future establishment in context to God's judgment of the earth. Remember Daniel 2, that when this kingdom comes, it's going to crush all those other kingdoms. So, it's an eschatological kingdom that, that occurs at the second coming. It's at the end of the age when all rebellion will be crushed. And we know this kingdom hasn't been established yet because rebellion has not been crushed yet. This kingdom, still talking about the Messiah's kingdom, my friend uh, John Harrigan calls it the Messianic kingdom. So whatever you want, the, the kingdom of the Messiah, the Messianic kingdom, however you want to call it, this kingdom will have its governmental headquarters in Jerusalem. Jesus the Messiah will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and rule the earth in righteousness from there, both are the kingdom of God in an important sense. So, here's a question. Which one of these, the universal kingdom or the Messiah's future earthly kingdom, are we a part of simply by virtue of the fact that we were created by God and are therefore a part of His creation? Right, the universal, right? Okay. Now, we talked about this, so we don't, need to, we don't need to go into this much. Who is a part of the universal kingdom in this wicked, evil age? Well, obviously, the righteous, the wicked animals, everything in all creation is part of God's kingdom in that sense. So, now, um, I don't have the question. Uh, it's okay. Let me, I have a, the question I have is, um, I don't have it on here, but. The, the question I want to ask you guys is, which of these two requires repentance and faith to be included in it, to be a part of it, have a place in it? That's right, the kingdom of the Messiah, right? Because if God's going to establish a kingdom that's going to endure forever, he will, it's going to be a righteous kingdom. So, it means the righteous get to be a part of it. Well, what does that mean? It means repentance and faith. So, so, when Abraham, what did, sometimes we forget to ask, when, when Abraham's called a, a man of faith or a father of faith, what did he actually have faith in? Okay, what did he have faith in? His promise, and his pr- promise specifically concerning the kingdom to come. Okay, Abraham wasn't just concerned, Lord, am I going to, are my, are my offspring, you know, my 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 grandchildren and great-grandchildren, are they going to inherit this land? He wanted to know, am I going to get it? <laughs> am I going to get it? Which means, am I going to come up from the grave? And God says, yes, you are. You're going to come up, and, and you're going to inherit my kingdom. So, that's something we need to keep in mind, is that right now, we, we the things we see on the earth are rebellion. We see all kinds of crazy things that, whether it's The sex sex trade industry, whether it's abortion, these are things that define, you know, whether it's the universities constantly assaulting and accusing God and undermining the Scriptures and all these different things, all these different strategies of the evil one, those are the things we see around us, okay? But faith is being certain of what we hope for, things we don't see, we don't see Jesus on a throne in Jerusalem yet, but God has promised that it is coming. And so we're putting our anchor there so that when the pressures of the things that, that, are, that we're experiencing now are coming against us, we, we've got an anchor to pull us forward, okay? To pull us forward through those hardships and difficulties and temptations. So it's very important to, to get an understanding of that kingdom is... The kingdom that we're anchoring our hope in is that future kingdom that's coming. <clears throat> so anyway, we, so it, the, king, the, the one that requires repentance and faith is the Messiah's coming kingdom on the earth. So Mark, uh, let's read the following verses together, and here's what I want you to do. As we read, I want you to think in light of this discussion, which kingdom is being proclaimed as good news here? Okay? Mark 1, 14 through 15. It says, after John, can you guys see that? After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. You think Jesus had passages like Daniel 2 in his mind? Verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Other translations say at hand, repent and believe the good news. So my question is, which one of these do you think is being trumpeted here? That's right. The kingdom of God, which now are we taught? Do you think it's the kingdom of God in the the universal sense, or in the specific sense of the Messiah's earthly kingdom? That's right. It's very important to, to keep in mind. So Jesus is proclaiming the day of the Lord is what he's proclaiming. Repent for the day of the Lord. The time prophesied in Daniel two. It's getting closer and closer and closer. And closer, repent and believe the good news so that you're a part of the thing about which the good news is talking, the kingdom to come. So when John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand, they were proclaiming the coming kingdom of the Messiah. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Behold, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's ready to begin threshing the wheat. And the chaff is going to be blown away and burned up in the fire, but he's going to gather the wheat and put it in his barn. What do you think the barn is? It's it's the kingdom of the Messiah. And he's he's going to take his winnowing fork, and he's going to destroy and crush the wicked. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Okay? They were proclaiming the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And inclusion in this kingdom requires repentance and faith in Jesus as Lord. I believe Jesus. That you are the one the Father has appointed to restore all things. I believe that you've been raised on the third day that you've triumphed over grave, over the grave, as the first fruits of the resurrection of all your people. I believe that death does not have the final say. I believe that Satan is going to be bound and thrown into the abyss, that his wicked influence will be purged from the earth. I believe, Jesus, that the restoration of all things is at hand. Therefore, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at that magazine. I'm going to shut down the this computer I'm going to walk forward I'm not going to listen to the professors who think they're so smart but they mock you and accuse you day after day I'm going to believe in the promise of your gospel and inch by inch and prayer by prayer and inch by inch and prayer by prayer righteousness is formed in us and holiness is formed in us and we become strong in spirit and we don't yield to temptation and we move forward until the day when he comes in glory and power I need a drink of water. (laughs) So. Oh, Father, we just long for that day, God. We just long for that day, God. We long for the curse to be removed from the earth and for the wrong things to be made right. And we say that you are true. That every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus and that your kingdom is coming And it will be established and we will not listen to the voices of doubt and unbelief. We say, God, that your word is true and your kingdom is sure. In Jesus' name. So, we saw from Daniel 2 that the Messiah's kingdom will be established in the day of the Lord, when God will crush all rebellious earthly kingdoms and blow them away like the chaff. Several hundred years, even before the Messiah showed up on the scene, the first time, the prophets, Isaiah, you guys can go read some of these passages on your own. Just, and just when you read those passages, realize that Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, and Obadiah, and Zephaniah, they weren't stupid. A lot of times... I'm serious. A lot of times you go to seminary and you hear all this stuff. Whatever, I'm, I'm not going to get into soapbox. But a lot of times the, the, the old saints of the Old Testament end up looking really stupid, okay, like cavemen. Like they, don't, like they didn't really have any concept of the Messiah or the day of the Lord. And so when they talked about the day of the Lord and things falling from the sky and the earth being shaken... They're speaking metaphorically about just, you know, this conflict they're having with Moab. No, if they're having a conflict with Moab, it's because it's a, it's a type of the day of the Lord that God warned the prophets about, because that's the day when all the earth would be judged, okay? So, I'm not going to get into all of that, but just realize that our, the saints of the Old Testament shared the same hope that we have, Okay? And if you've been exposed to higher criticism and that kinds of stuff, just let the Holy Spirit wash your minds of that stuff. That stuff will be burned in the day of the Lord. I prophesy that. Jesus understood his message about the kingdom of God being at hand in the same way, a statement of urgency irrespective of when the end of the age actually arrives in history. So Zephaniah, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. He's talking about the great day of the Lord at the end of the age. Okay? It's near and it's coming quickly. Now, Zephaniah is prophesying this hundreds of years, even before Jesus said the day of the kingdom of God's at hand. Okay? So the point is that it's always urgent. We always have to live as if it's at hand, like it, that Matthew 24 could begin unfolding tomorrow. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. want to be on the Lord's side when this day comes. (laughs) Oh, mercy. Lord, help us. Give us grace, Jesus, to hear your voice clearly when this stuff comes down. Luke 10, 8-15, just to give another context in which Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, what He means. Verse 8, He says, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Now, so they're healing the sick. Now, when somebody's arm gets healed, will they still die? Yes, they will. So what's the purpose of the healing? It's to point to something future, when we receive bodies that will never die, right? That's what a sign is, it points beyond itself. So he's saying, when you go into a town, do signs. Signs of what? Signs of the resurrection, signs of the coming kingdom, which is at hand. So he's still got his future gaze here. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near." So, verse twelve. I tell you will be more bearable on that day, for Sodom than for that town. On which day? The day of the Lord. What happens in the day of the Lord? The kingdoms established on the earth. What happens when the kingdom is established on the earth? Daniel two and all those other kingdoms. The one of bronze, gold, silver, whatever, are crushed and there's no trace of them. And it looks like it looks like uh, Capernaum and uh, or Capernaum. Uh, are going to be part of, <laughs> part of those ones that get crushed, unless something changed dramatically after Jesus spoke this. So, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Yeah, it looks like they're part of it, too. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. So what's he ta- what has he got in his heart here? The day of judgment, doesn't he? And you, Capernaum, will be lifted up to the skies. No, you will go down to the depths. Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. So when he says the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near, he's saying, he's still referring to that future kingdom that he's going to establish at his second coming. Okay? Now, of course, his death and his resurrection made the way possible for us to have a place in that kingdom. So to first century Jews, it would not have been good news that God's universal kingdom was now near or at hand. Because God's universal kingdom had always been at hand from the beginning of creation. See what I'm saying? Okay? God had been sitting on His heavenly throne from the beginning. So, you know, Jesus says, Matthew 6, He teaches us how to pray, let your kingdom come. It, It really, it doesn't have any real significant meaning if we're talking about the universal kingdom because it is already here. Now, of course, they're dynamically related. Jesus is at the Father's right hand at present until the day when God sends him back to crush all of his enemies under his feet. But their hope was the coming kingdom of the Messiah to be established at the end of the age, and this too is our blessed hope. Let's read from Titus two eleven through 14 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I tell you what, you want motivation to say no to the flesh... Keep this kingdom in in the forefront of your consciousness all day, every day, and the basis on which we, uh, or who's going to be a part of that kingdom. There's not going to be any sexual immorality in the age to come. Therefore, don't indulge in it now. Resist it. Get accountability partners. Fast, pray, seek God, lean into the grace of the Holy Spirit, press in, say no, There's going to be no pride in the age to come. There's going to be no pride in the Messiah's kingdom. Therefore, say no to it now. Say no. Do you see how how the message of the kingdom is inherently motivational when we understand it the way the Scriptures teach it? It's to drive us in righteousness, drive us in obedience, motivate us when when the enemy comes in like a flood to to start quoting those Bible verses and to resist him by the power of of the Holy Spirit. It teaches us to live self-controlled, Upright and godly lives in this present age. Why? Because only the self controlled and only the upright and only the godly will inherit the age to come. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I really like when I've, you know, if my back, you know, I hurt my back a couple weeks ago. If my back gets healed, I'm going to be really happy about that. I'm going to love God a lot okay? But if I, my back gets healed, sometimes, I, you know, I'll be thankful for it, but I might go and, and, and vomit from the flu like a couple weeks later, you know? My hope is in the day that God fixes my body permanently. See what I'm saying? I can expect God to move in power. I can expect Him to move in signs and wonders. I want to press in for that because it adds credibility to our witness, but my hope is unwavering because it's anchored in what God, because I want it to be anchored in the things that God wants it to be anchored in, okay? In a kingdom that never perishes, spoils, or fades, that's to come. The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Next point. Therefore, when God created the heavens and the earth, uh, these became part of His kingdom. Sorry, I, I misprint there in my notes. The point is, God created the heavens and the earth. All creation is a part of His kingdom. God has authority over His. God has authority over His kingdom. He is seated on a throne in the highest heavens. God is seated over the heavens and the earth as King. He has all authority and power over the heavens and the earth. God's kingdom over all creation is His universal kingdom. He rules over everything from His throne in the highest heavens. Part of that kingdom is in rebellion against God. We talked about that when we talked about uh, we talked about the heavens and the part of the heavens that are in rebellion against Him, and obviously the earth is in rebellion against Him as well. But God's being patient with the human rebels. It would be, again, we used this analogy a few weeks back, it would be as if Oregon or Wyoming were to rebel against the United States government. Okay, so if we want to liken the United States government to the universal kingdom, I know the analogies break down, but just because Oregon thinks it is on its own, it wouldn't really mean that. You know, if Oregon suddenly says, we want to secede from the union, we're going to do our own thing, you know, then the U.S. has a really big army and a lot of power and a lot of strength. They say, Absolutely not. You're not going to do that. And if need be, they'll go in there and take it by force to make sure that doesn't happen. That's what was ha- That actually did happen in the Civil War when the southern states tried to secede. And the difference is that God, God loves the people in Oregon. You know, the U.S. government probably would just go in and do it. God actually cares about the people in Oregon and doesn't want them to be squelched under His tanks. He's got, God's got a lot of tanks, a lot of angels, a lot of power. He can. He's got the power to do this thing, and so there's a reason he's not using it right now. And we're going to talk about that. But, uh, but the means. If you, so, if you think of Oregon as the earth in rebellion against God, you think of the U.S. government as the universal kingdom, so to speak. Just to help us get a grip on this, the messianic kingdom is the instrument whereby God brings Oregon back into the union. Does that make sense? Okay, and, establish, and, and, and begins to enforce His will on earth as it is in heaven. So, let's go to the next point. The universal kingdom and the Messiah's coming kingdom are dynamically related. The sun... Now, see this... When you start trying to work out the relationship in detail, it gets kind of hard because our minds are, are mush and finite. The sun... The second person of the Trinity is the eternal Word of God, who has always existed. So, the Son's always been around, the eternal Word of God, even before the world was created. And before He was incarnated in Jesus, he, was, he played a role in ruling the creation. You know, obviously, you know, it says all things are upheld and sustained in Him. When He became flesh, the Word became Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the God-man, has been raised to the Father's right hand, and so... When has the second person of the Trinity not ever been a part of ruling? He's always been part of ruling in some sense. But only since Jesus has He been ruling as in the sen- some sense with the universal kingdom as the God-man. So, you know what I'm saying? It's, your mind can start to, how does this all work? You know, but, but the point is that Jesus now, as a man, He's fully God, He's fully man. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father. And think of King David. King David was the type of the Messiah to come. When Samuel went to King David's, went to Bethlehem, and he, uh, and and you guys know the some, you know we know the story. You know his son, all the the sons went through, none of them were the were God's choice. So he says, uh, "Do you have another?" Yes, there's one out in the fields. They bring David in, and what does Samuel do? He anoints him with oil, right? He anoints him with oil. So at that point. Um, when he's anointed with oil, he's pretty much insured the kingship, isn't he? Now, is there a gap in time between the, when he actually is anointed with oil and he actually ascends to his throne in Jerusalem? There's a gap there, isn't there? So, when does he become king? After Saul dies, when he's anointed with by Samuel, is he king? Is he? Right. That's a good point. I mean, that's what we're trying to get at is that is that he's anointed as king and it says I mean, people come up to him in several parts of his life. We know that God's appointed you as king over Israel before he's actually like sitting on the throne. So there's a certainty of his king his kingship is ensured, and it's certain. So I'm just I'm saying that David's a good example of the type of Jesus, you know, when he was raised from the dead in power, he was anointed as he's the king. All of, what did he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has what? Has been given to me. That's right. So he's sitting at the Father's right hand. And yet, when you go to Jerusalem today, who's sitting on David's throne right now? It's not Jesus. <laughs> I guarantee that. It's not Jesus. And so there is a dimension of that that is still remaining to be fulfilled. Does that make sense? I like the David analogy because it's kind of, you know, it gives me a way to think about how is it that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, so He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He's playing a role in agreement with the way God is governing the universe, the, His universal kingdom over all creation, and yet when Jesus comes back to enforce the kingdom of God on the earth, He's going to be sitting on David's actual throne. I like uh, the way it happened with David with the the anointing and then the... Then he sat on his throne later on. So any questions at this point? Comments? Thoughts? It is, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The kingdom of God is vast, isn't it? Yeah. Thoughts? It's enticing. It's boring, isn't it? Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good, because we all want to end up there. So, <clears throat> so let's buckle our seatbelts, because we're going to talk about what God's presently doing on His heavenly throne and what He's going to do. And this should cause us to swell up with thanksgiving and gratefulness, but also, also to tremble in our hearts. What God is presently doing on His heavenly throne. So now we're going, uh, let's think more in terms of the universal kingdom, uh, at least on the front end of this. When we read scripture, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us insight as to which kingdom is being talked about. Again, not a sharp dichotomy. If you start doing a sharp dichotomy, everything kind of gets messed up, but... Just help. It's it's helpful for us to categorize these in in this kind of way, just to to really understand. You know, when Daniel is talking about a kingdom that's coming to fill the whole earth and crush other kingdoms, he's talking about an earthly kingdom that's to be established at the end of the age. That it's helpful to just to know that that's the grid that he has when we're reading that chapter. What are we actually supposed to have faith in? We talked about this. What did Abraham have faith in? He had his faith in a kingdom that's to come to be established on the earth at the end when Jesus comes back. Point B, confusion on this topic can sometimes lead to disappointment concerning what we expect God to do and not do in this age. Who's ever been disappointed with God, if you were honest? I've been disappointed, you know, something that you really expected him to do. He didn't do it that way. And you hear some sermon on the kingdom and it really throws you for a loop because you're doing all the stuff and it's not happening. Okay, I'm just giving you some examples of things that have happened with me. And then you start exploring some of these things and you realize that there's more variables at play than sometimes we realize. Okay, I don't want to have a heart that's offended at God. And the reality is that a, a, a biblical understanding of the kingdom actually works against offense. When we, when we truly enter into it, and it, gives, it causes us to really love God and be thankful. So we're going to look into why that is. A wrong understanding on this topic can obscure the goodness of the father's heart. Tell me which one of these is a good father. The father who is patient with their children, or the father that lashes out quickly in anger against their children. Patient. Which one would you like as your father? Let's ask it that way. Okay, that's right, okay. Which one of these is a good father? The father who, uh, who who, warns and encourages and coaches and expresses their intention? Or the one who doesn't ever give any expression of their attention or any warning but just suddenly lashes out with no, no warning whatsoever? A. Who wants, who wants A? Okay, now, if you're a father... And you've got a big mess in your house called, you've got ten children, half of them are living lives that make the house work. Half of them are living lives that completely derail the thing and result in fights and arguments and beating and hitting. Okay? Which father is a good father? The father that says, I'm going to put an end to that in September. <laughs> okay? Okay? I'm giving you time, those of you who are not submitting to my statutes and my decrees as a father of my home, or the father that says, I'm just going to let this mess go on forever. Which one's the good father? That's right. So, so think about the different dynamics here that are, we're, we're using to define a good father. There's a, there, one part of it is the long-suffering, patience. We all want that. And that's the tension we all struggle with as parents, isn't it, is... When am I being too heavy on my children? When am I being too light? And I've struggled with that all the time. Just when, when am I being too strong? When am I not being strong enough? And then, you know, Emily and I, we always talk about how we have a jacked up child list. That, we're, you know, it's, or an inner healing list is what I'm trying to say. Like, we just say, well, okay, she's going to need inner healing for that one, that one, that one. Maybe if we keep a list on the front end, when the time for inner healing actually arrives, it'll be a better process, you know. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, but it drives you to prayer. And so we want to ask God, God, how do you father us, and how does this actually relate to your kingdom, to this age, the next, and the age to come? And then even begin integrating some of these in- insights into our own homes. But anyhow, so, so here's my question. Keeping those, those things in mind, you know, so, it, confusion on these issues? Some people, a little confusion, a little pain from their past, Plus an onslaught of the enemy, and deception has led some to even become so offended that they they leave the faith, okay, over what they think God should do and what He's not doing. And these kinds of questions. So these are important issues. Just they're justice issues. For example, what about all the injustice in the world? If the kingdom of God is at hand, if you're thinking the universal kingdom here, why is there human trafficking? Why are little girls being? kidnapped out of villages by wicked men and used and abused okay why are how many bo- babies have been aborted in the US in the last 50 years what is it 40 million 50 million that's a lot that's a lot of bloodshed you know if if the blood if the ground was crying out because of Abel's blood okay think about what the ground is crying out right now after all these millennia of this kind of bloodshed, so the question is you know why why are these things not being you know see what I'm saying and and then you if you want to bring it down if you if you're praying praying am I just not you could you could see how it could tweak with your your psyche and your own relationship with God and how it could tweak with with your your um, confidence of prayer I mean am I just not praying enough i've you know, I've done four, 20, 40 day fasts for human trafficking. and Human trafficking has, hasn't ended yet. Okay? I mean, God, so then you start getting into this whole kind of thing and it starts messing with you. And, and, and then you start reading well, what are the prayers in the New Testament? Oh, what are they oriented towards? What's the framework within which they're prayed? See what I'm saying? And a lot of times, those those prayers are assuming the kind of framework that we're talking about in, in its understanding of the kingdom. <clears throat> so you know, God, what are you doing up there? You know, do you, don't you see this mess? We want to have clarity on this top. We want to have clarity on this topic so that we don't give the enemy room to plant accusations in our hearts against God. Okay, I don't want accusation in my heart against God. I want to be a humble son. I want to love Him and yield to Him, and trust Him, especially in the hour that's getting ready to come to the earth. There's going to be every opportunity, guys, every opportunity for our hearts to become very, very offended at God, okay? That's why we're meeting on Friday nights. We don't want to be in that camp. We want to be those who know our God so so intimately that no matter what's happening, because we have a grid for what's happening, and this is a part of that grid, that we're not offended at Him, and we don't get get angry and start shaking our fist at Him. So what is God presently doing in and from the highest heavens? What is He not doing yet? What will He do in the future? And when we see the full picture in light of the universal kingdom, in connection to the Messiah's coming kingdom, our heart will begin to explode with love, gratitude, and thankfulness. So as we said, parts of God's universal kingdom, of the heavens and the earth, are in rebellion against Him. So here's my question. In this sense, God's the Father of all all creation. What do you think God desires for the human beings in His universal kingdom who are still in rebellion against Him? What do you think He feels for them? Love? Yeah. Have you ever talked to a parent whose child is in uh, rebellion or resistance against them? How that parent feels? They love their child so much, and yet... I mean, it's, I can't imagine, it's probably one of the most difficult things I could imagine, you know, when you actually love your children and they start, you know, we always talk about the children who are messed up because they had bad parents, (laughs) okay? What if it's the, you know, that's hard, and to still love them in the midst of that. I know several examples of people in my own life who are seeking God on those things. Well, how do you think God feels? How do you think he feels about the Osama bin Laden's in the world? Yeah, hurt. What else? Well, I think one has to see it in the context. That God's love is uh, what's the word? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's okay. Right, that's good. Yeah, that's That's good. On that point, you know, at some point, maybe on a Friday night, we need to talk about the fatherhood of God and and God's Father's heart, but from different perspectives, because sometimes, you know, there's the fatherhood of God universally, there's the fatherhood of God covenantally, okay? Those in covenant with Him, how those relate to each other, there's the, the fatherhood of God eschatologically, that's just in times, and, 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 and that's related to, to His fulfillment of His promises in the covenant. So there's all those different dynamics, and how does intention relate to follow-through in all these different things, so that at the end of it, you've got a kingdom <laughs> that is full of light and glory and truth and righteousness on the earth. So that's really, that's really good insight. But the point is that, you know, God really grieves over His Im- image bearers who are resisting Him or ignoring Him or sliding Him in some way. So we're going to start in uh, point E. Let's talk about what God's not doing from His throne in the, in the heavens, in the highest heavens. Although God has all authority and power over the heavens and the earth, He's restraining God has a will. He doesn't just have power. He has a will. And He's choosing because of His love. He's exercising His will in such a way that He's restraining from using His power to destroy the wicked. He's giving the wicked time to repent. He's merciful and long-suffering because He loves the wicked. Okay? God's Father's heart is expressed by His patience toward those on the earth. He grieves over the death of the wicked. He's giving us time to repent. This is really good news for us. If the day of the Lord had come 40, 35, 40 years ago, then I'm not, Then Tim Miller is not going to be standing before Jesus enjoying my, my Messiah in His kingdom. Or, not even on that, just me being created, if the Lord wasn't merciful with sinners, I would be in real trouble. I mean, I am a wicked, wicked man apart from the work and grace of the Holy Spirit. I have no delusions about what is in me apart from God. I would be flying planes into the Twin Towers if it were not for God. You guys might be there with me, okay, if it were not for the intervention of God. His long-suffering toward the wicked of the earth is good news. It's good news for us. Think about God's pattern with Israel. He lets Israel go into to Egypt. They're oppressed, right? He tells Abraham, Genesis 15, your, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt for 400 years. They're oppressed. When you're, being press, you're, when you're being oppressed from the outside, externally, by another person or another people, what's the cry of your heart? Justice, right? God, Deliverance. We were just watching the prince of Egypt before I came over here. They're singing, deliverance, deliverance, deliver us. Are you watching us, God? And then God sends Moses, he delivers them, right? Then they go to Mount Sinai, and they form a covenant, don't they? Okay? Suddenly, in Mount Sinai, God's standards and His laws are revealed, aren't they? This is how I feel about the poor, the alien. Love me. Love your neighbor. Okay? So they, they, now they're in a covenant with God, and suddenly they're in the land, and they know God's heart. They've received justice. They've, been, they've received the embodiment of justice now on Mount, on Mount Sinai. And what happens? They're now expected to abide by it. And what happens in the land? They fall short, don't they? they oh my goodness, I keep wanting to go after these gods. Oh my goodness, I, I'm having all these problems. They're not, they're not able to meet that standard of justice, are they? So, when you real, so they realize that there's a problem on the inside and that the oppressor isn't just on the outside. But what happens? The oppressor is sin on the inside. Now what when you when you realize that the oppressor is on the inside what's your cry Is it justice? It's mercy. It's mercy, isn't it? And so what happens? They're kicked out of the land because they weren't able it, it, I'm talking about the Jews they were kicked out of the land because they fell short of the standard of justice. And then the Messiah comes with what? With mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and now a new is formed, the Spirit's poured out, and that covenant has the power to give them an, inter- an eternal inheritance in the resurrection. And so at the end of the age, you've got the whole thing flipped on its head, where now the people of God are going to be oppressed, and instead of crying for judgment and justice on our oppressors, we're going to be crying out for what? Mercy. Mercy mercy. And that's when Jesus comes back, is when our witness is a cry for mercy on the wicked, rather than judgment on the wicked, up to the point of the end. And, and the earth still doesn't respond. That's when the curtain closes. See, that? See how that, that, that goes? So anyhow, So for second, let's read some of these, just a couple passages here. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He says, you know, people are scoffing, where is this coming? He promised. He says, the Lord's, He's not slow in the same way that some understand slowness. No, He's patient and long-suffering with us, not wanting anyone to perish. Wanting the Muslims and the Buddhists and the satanic ritually abused. Uh, I mean, He's wanting the whole gamut, the secular atheists, the homosexuals, the, the, everybody, okay? He's wanting, he's patient and long-suffering with human beings, and he wants to give them time to repent, and that's good news because we're all in that category. Ezekiel 33, 10 through 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does God take pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, no, he doesn't would rather that they turn from their ways and live. What does God want? He wants the wicked to turn so that they live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You don't have to die. All you got to do is repent and believe in Me. Live in righteousness. Walk in obedience by My Spirit. You don't have to die. Okay? So that... If you want to know why God is not is not destroying human traffickers right now. It's because a big part of the reason is He loves human traffickers, okay? And as hard and emotional as issues like that are, He loves the mother who killed her baby, and He's giving her time to repent. Now, it may be that God does Answer your prayers, and you'll hear. He'll he'll answer your prayer, and he'll shut this place down, or or that place down, or or there'll be an abortion clinic where you hear stories of of the Holy Spirit speaking to mothers, and they they leave. And so the Lord's giving you signs and tokens to continue praying. Okay, He's giving those signs and tokens, and and but you're not going to get burnt out in prayer, thinking that you're going to end the whole industry before Jesus comes back. See what I'm saying? You can really say, you, this is what I'm talking about. You want to you wanna, you wanna be in agreement with where the scriptures, the, way, the, the, the rules of the game, the pieces of the game, so that you begin directing your prayers for the salvation of the tra- human traffickers too. Because God, God may see, who, I don't know how it all works, I don't know if God's looking out over 20 different people, and five of them have hardened their hearts to the point where they're beyond salvation. God knows their heart. I don't know, you know. And maybe he says, okay, because they're at that state, I'm just going to take them out. He might do that, okay? But there's still 15 that there might be the slightest chance, okay? And maybe he were, I don't See, th- those are complex dynamics I don't understand. But we want to know God's heart in the midst of it so that we don't become disillusioned because these things are going to really ramp up and we're going to see answers to our prayers... But you want, but you really want to anchor those prayers in the, that's why we really encourage reading, praying the New Testament prayers, because those New Testament prayers are anchored in the things that we're talking about in terms of preparing the bride for the kingdom to come, letting the word run swiftly so that the human trafficker gets saved, those kinds of things, Okay. Because if you're praying, God come and judge, come and judge the wicked, come and judge. God's saying, "No, I'm restraining from judging the wicked. I'll do that later. I've an appointed time for that." But let's pray for the salvation of the wicked right now. You can kind of your prayer life can really get messed up, Jack, with your mind a little bit. Uh, point F. However, though God is restraining from the day of wrath, God is actively taking note. He's not passive on His throne. He's actively taking note of everything that happens on the earth. God is looking down from heaven on the earth. His eyes see all. When God created the heavens, he put a sea of glass before his throne. Glass is transparent and clear. You can see through glass. That's the point. God is looking through the glass at the earth. He sees everything we do, think or say. He knows all of our motives, and one day these will all be exposed for all to see. And this is a key part of the gospel, Paul says. This, <laughs> we're going to stand before the Lord, and, and everything's going to be exposed. And uh, this, is, this should cause us to tremble, is the point. Revelation 4, 6. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So picture God's throne. There's a sea of glass, and he sees right through it. And he's observing and noting everything that happens on the earth. Hebrews four thirteen. Nothing In all creation is hidden. God is not deaf to the voice of that little girl who is being used and abused in Thailand. He is not deaf to it. We've got to get that straight. He is not deaf to it. He is not deaf to that baby in the mother's womb suffocating by whatever they're injecting in the womb. Okay. He is not deaf to it. He is not passive. He is grieving over it but he loves the mama who's letting it happen enough to restrain from giving her what she deserves in that moment. Okay? God is not deaf to your cry when people maliciously slander you without reason and you choose to respond as Jesus did in love and bless your enemies. He's not deaf. Okay? He sees it all through that sea of glass. Everything is uncovered. It's all laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, and we will give an account. Romans 2.16 says, This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Guys, when we proclaim the gospel, a key aspect of the gospel, the apostle Paul says, is the knowledge that God sees all. He will hold us accountable to all. Our motives, our thoughts, our intentions That knowledge is supposed to drive us forward by the grace of the Holy Spirit in love and righteousness. The the knowledge that one day I'm going to give an account. We've got to get this part of the gospel back into the pulpits. Okay? It's got to be a core part of the gospel. We are going to give an account of our lives. God is looking down from His throne in the heavens. He is watching and observing What we are going to do with the hearts he put in us. We didn't give ourselves hearts. We didn't create ourselves. He made them. We're going to read that in a second. We will love him. Will we love him with all of our hearts? Will we? This little flock that we are tonight. Will we love him with all of our hearts? Will we obey him? Will we harden our hearts toward him and disobey him? Will we scoff at what God says he will do in the day of judgment? Or will we let the fear of the Lord drive us to righteousness and a life of self-sacrificial love following Jesus' example. God is carefully watching and observing the hearts of all mankind. He is considering everything we do and say. He is examining our motives. When Jesus returns, all of us will give an account of our lives before God. Psalm 33, verse 13, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. He's not passive up there. He's watching. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all. He formed our hearts. He wants to know what's happening on the inside. What's driving us to do the things we do. He can't, it's very, very important to him. It doesn't feel important to us. We need five cups of coffee to actually remember our name. At least I do in the morning. Okay? But it matters to God what's happening on the inside. Okay? It matters to him. He's watching it. He's taking note of it. He's recording it. God's looking for, for down from his throne as well now to see if there are people on the earth who will turn from their wicked ways and seek him. He's given the window of mercy, but people actually have to turn to him in that window of mercy. Psalm 14, "The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God." Saints of the most high God, will we be among that company who seek him? Who wants to be among that company? I want to be among the company of those who seek God and seek understanding of His ways. This one, I love this passage we're going to read. He's taking note of the righteous who, though not perfect, are are in fact sincerely seeking Him. He's taking note of those who sincerely revere His name and believe that one day they will give an account of their lives for their lives Through the sea of glass, he's looking at those who sincerely desire to obey him. We can't obey him in our own effort alone, but God gives us his grace by the Holy Spirit to grow in obedience over time. Every yes, every prayer Holy Spirit, I sow to you. I yield to you. Holy Spirit, help me. Oh God, I blew it. Help me. Forgive me. Holy Spirit, give me grace. Give me grace. And over time, love begins to to flow from our lives and obedience, strength to obey him. He has his eye on us, he's cheering us on as we run the race. He does sit on a high and lofty throne in the highest heavens, and yet from that throne He gives us strength and grace for the journey. From His glorious throne in the heavens, He gives us grace to love and obey Him if we will ask Him for it. Come boldly to the throne of grace. He will revive our spirits from His throne. His throne is a throne of grace where we find power and strength to obey. We can have confidence that God will give us the grace we need to stand blameless before Him. Oh, the, the passage I was thinking about is a little bit later, but Isaiah 51 and 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, his throne in the highest heavens. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. He will revive our spirits when. If, we're, if the enemy's coming against us with depression or whatever these things are, he will revive our spirits. Hebrews four sixteen. let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We've got to approach that throne and we will rec- receive mercy when we stumble, but not just mercy and forgiveness, we'll receive grace and power and enablement to follow through by the power of the Holy Spirit and to resist the flesh And to walk in love and righteousness as God desires and as God defines it by the cross. This is the passage I was talking about that really I love. From his throne in the highest heavens, God is recording and taking note of all the godly conversations that produce righteousness and obedience in our lives. So picture where you are throughout the day. Picture all the conversations you have. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So lots of conversations between those who fear the Lord, who believe that God's going to do the things he said he's going to do, who tremble in the knowledge that he's watching them, but also are motivated by that and are exhilarated by it because they know that he's a loving father watching us. Verse 17, they will be mine. This is the promise, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make it my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him, when earthquakes are shaking the earth, and fire is coming on the earth, a cataclysm of fire, when, when hailstones are being plummeted to the earth, God's going to spare His own and resurrect us. And you'll again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. <clears throat> God's not passive in this age. He's recording it all down in our lives, and it will be rewarded. It will, it will be honored at His return, and there will be a distinction. Right now, it seems that we all have the same lot, don't we? We all have the righteous and the wicked both have parents and siblings that die, don't we? We all go through tough times, but what's our heart response to it? Are we responding righteously or wickedly? And God's going to say, "I do make a distinction between those two responses," and it will be made known in the day of the Lord when the sons of God are revealed. As the sons and daughters, they always were by the Holy Spirit and through Jesus' blood. So think about it. Well, next time you're at Starbucks, next time you're you know, at home with your family, we're having conversations. Think about those conversations. God's writing them down. The little ones that we bring Jesus up and we start talking about Jesus. In the heavens, there's a book called the book of life. God's recording books, in the, books of life, in the book of life. The big question the angels are asking, who will be among those included in the resurrection of the righteous at Jesus' return? Who will inherit the Messiah's glorious kingdom? Who will be a part of the shining bride? If we persevere in, the, in faith to the end, we'll receive the crown of life and the resurrection. At the second coming will be Jesus' inheritance as his bride. Those whose names aren't in this book will be included in the resurrection of the wicked. This is also known as the second death. This is the death that God grieves over the most. We saw a f- few weeks ago God made a covenant with creation that the creation would always exist, but God won't allow wickedness to devastate the earth forever either. So what's the solution? The wicked will also live in forever in resurrected bodies. They won't just be annihilated or snuffed out, but they will also be secluded from the rest, but they will also be secluded from the rest of creation in the lake lake of fire. The wicked will receive resurrected bodies and they will experience the lake of fire in a body. This requires urgency on the church in proclaiming the gospel, so Philippians four three he just tell he says that that these women their names are written in the book of life acts twenty four fourteen Paul says I, believe, I have the same hope as as Moses and the law and the prophets that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, <clears throat> not just the righteous will receive resurrected bodies but the wicked as well and then uh, just go down in the revelation passage there down to verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Really important, guys, for people's names to get in that book of life. Revelation two eleven. he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And from his throne in the highest heaven, God is also taking note of the wicked and those who are perpetuating injustice and violence on the earth. God's listening to the cries of the oppressed, the prayers of the oppressed. There will be a day of reckoning. I just want to read uh, Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Richie, I'm going to have you go ahead and come up. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. And I think that like Terry was saying, you know, when we're thinking hate, think about covenantally, too, that God's... God's uh, but I'm, there's definitely God has deep emotion and hatred for sin and wickedness. But uh, the wicked, when, when God fulfills His covenant, are going to be on the bad side of that. On the wicked, He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see His face. And uh, on the wicked, verse 6, on the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. Friends, the day of the Lord's at hand. The kingdom of God's at hand. The restoration of all things is at hand. The hour of judgment is at hand. He is going to rain burning coals and fiery sulfur on Playboy. He's going to rain burning coals and firing fiery sulfur, fiery coals and burning sulfur on the the mafia, organized crime, governments that don't repent. He's a good father. He's been patient, but it's got to come to an end sometime. He's going to burn those billboards that defile our eyes when we drive with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand. But until that day, there's still mercy. There is still mercy for the wicked. There's still an opportunity. Okay? There's still an opportunity. And so tonight, I want that to be the, the burning desire of our heart. These things all come together in God's heart. They can come together in our heart. I long for the day when that stuff's not on the earth, but I long for the wicked to, be, to, to repent as well. These things can come together. And so, as we pray, what we're going to do tonight is we want to give time, we, uh, a context for us to respond in prayer. <clears throat> you know, with a, a message like this, it's kind of weighty. We want to give context for people to cry out for salvation, for friends and family. Context for people to, to cry out for God to show mercy, for the word of the Lord to run swiftly. So while Richie's playing... We just want to create a, 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 an atmosphere where people can respond. You can respond in your chairs. You can pace. We want to, but we do want to, we want to have a chance to respond in prayer. We don't just want to, to, to leave without responding. And what we're going to do, Jen's going to start us off. We're going to move into a time of, <clears throat> for about 15, 20 minutes here, of, of prayer together. And if the Lord impresses a prayer in your heart that you would like to find expression that we can all agree with you on, in response to this, whether it's for your own family and friends, whether it's for just the bride in general, or for us as a group to grow in righteousness and to grow in faith in the kingdom that's coming and to, uh, to be prepared in that sense for, for what's coming, whatever it is, uh, just come up here and take the mic. And, and Richie's going to kind of sing around that. We're going to do a little harp and bowl uh, format around this. But I'll open this up just in prayer, and then Jen, Jen's going to take it. So God, in the name of Jesus, we respond. We say, Lord Jesus, the hour is urgent. We say, God, we need help. We say, Lord, have mercy on the wicked. God, we know the depth of our own sin, and we know that there are multitudes of human beings, Lord, that are ensnared in things that they don't understand, they don't like, they don't understand the true implications of it. God, I think of my own family members. God, in the name of Jesus, I ask you for mercy. I ask you opportunity for the gospel to go forth, for the kingdom to be proclaimed, for repentance. Jesus, I ask you, I ask you, and I ask you, God, to speak tonight. Speak to us, Lord Jesus, as to what it means Lord God, to walk this journey in faith when we're constantly bombarded by the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life when we're continually assaulted by these things. God, I pray that you'd show us, show us, Lord, how we can stay faithful as we we cling to the hope of your coming kingdom, Jesus. We believe what Daniel believed. We believe what Isaiah believed. We believe what David and the Apostle Paul and Peter believed is coming. God, give us the grace to walk it out. Give us the grace to proclaim proclaim boldly. Give us grace, Lord Jesus, to share the gospel. God, we know that the resurrection of the wicked is is at hand as well. God, I ask you, I ask you in this hour to bring in the harvest. I ask you to bring in the harvest. I ask you to bring in the harvest, Jesus, from all nations. Bring in the harvest from these two cities, the twin cities. Bring in the harvest, oh God, on college campuses, God I prayed for grace for intercession and prayer tonight and response and prayer God as we as we as we worship you and love you in Jesus name